Welcome to Crafting Solutions to Conflict, a podcast that will explore ways to preserve harmony and prevent harmful conflict in valued relationships, and also ways to resolve conflict effectively and restore harmony if conflict should occur. I'm your host, Jane Bettle, and my goal is to share a perspective on conflict that is both practical and positive. Hello, Danny. Danny Van Leeuwen, also known as Health Hats. I am so happy to have you talking with me today about your work and also in particular a blog post that you put up in February that caught my eye and caught my attention like a lightning bolt. So welcome, Danny. Thank you. Glad to be here. Danny and I met through the podcasting fellowship, the second round, TPF2, where we learned how to podcast. Danny, I think of you as a patient advocate, a healthcare advocate, but I don't know that I am explaining it fully. So I will ask you to tell us a bit more about your work. Okay. Uh So I consider myself a patient caregiver activist, and my my name is, uh, or my business name is Health Hats, and it's Health Hats because I'm a patient. I have multiple sclerosis. I've been a caregiver for a grandmother, a mother, and a son on their end-of-life journey. I've been a nurse for 40-some years. I'm an informaticist, which means I have... uh, led some uh, electronic health record implementations, and I'm familiar with how people use uh, electronic tools in healthcare, and I've been a quality management professional. So I wear a lot of hats, and my work, I'm kind of the Rosetta Stone of healthcare. I understand health from many perspectives, and my main interest is in people driving their own train in managing their health. And what does it take to do that? And what are the skills that are needed to do that? And I'm interested in having citizen experts have a seat at the table for governance, for design, for operations, for research in healthcare. Well, I can certainly see why you say you wear many hats. That's quite an array of experiences, skills, interests, talents, all of those things that, as I'm thinking of it, you can bring to bear on a particular situation or challenge or a way to help someone. You ran a blog post in February that grabbed my attention, and it was about governance, a topic that some of my listeners view in the context of extended families some in the context of family businesses, some would call it decision-making and not simply governance. But the ideas that you set out in that post were so clear and, to my mind, so valuable that I wanted to have you come talk with us a bit about how you reached some of these thoughts and when they started. And I will just ask you to start at the beginning where you described your life when you were in your late 30s with your young family. I'd be happy to. When we were 
young, just starting a family, my wife and I, we were living in Western Massachusetts and we were thinking about would we ever be able to have a home of our own? Could we ever afford one? And it really didn't look like we could. We had friends who had purchased a large piece of land, unimproved land in West Virginia. And there were three families living in one existing house, and they invited us to come live there. And we were interested, but we weren't really interested in living in one house with three other families. That just sounded like a nightmare to us. (laughs) So we suggested to them that we come down and we build a house. So we ended up moving down and we lived in the barn and we built a house. Well, the name of the community was Jupiter Hollow. That was the name they gave themselves. That was before you arrived. Yes. Mm-hmm. And they they had purchased the land. One of the people was able to get a mortgage. And so that person purchased this large piece of unimproved land with one house. And they had a very informal governance process that my wife and I could see right away was not going to be sustainable. Danny, I want to ask you, how did you have that? How'd you have that knowledge? How could you tell right away? Was it experience that the two of you had had previously or just kind of something about the smell of this is off? I would say that healthcare is hugely about governance and decision-making. And it's about power and it's about power dynamics. So um, I think that I had my you know, career experience. I think, you know, that's a good question. How did we get to that? We've lived with people much of our lives. Again, you know, living with people is about getting along and assigning work and how do you make decisions. And so I think it was very natural for us, both career and life, that governance was really important. Thank you. Because when I was reading the blog post, I thought there are some terrific insights that not everybody has at that point in their lives. And it seemed as if this was not something you and your wife learned eventually, but pretty quickly you saw, hmm, this, this could be very challenging. Yes. The way we went about it is we, we hosted community meetings to think in English, and when I mean in English, not legally, just in plain language, what was our philosophy, what was, what did we want about to consider with ownership, what about decision making, what about new members, what about breaking up, and then we started writing bylaws, and then finally we consulted an attorney, and we formed a corporation, Jupiter Hollow Incorporated, that had stock and everybody had shares and it actually worked very well these are we were not people who were together because we had you know religion or a business we were friends who were living together and raising our families um some people might call it a commune uh we called it an intentional community and over the years it was like 25 years actually just recently the organization broke up and we we left after about 12 years but we followed those uh, 
those bylaws and those guidelines um, all the way through, and it made uh, quite a bit of difference. I'm interested in the process that you folks used. Specifically, it sounds as if you had sounds as if you had your ducks in a row before you went to a lawyer to make it into a legal document. Was that something that was an obvious, was that obvious to everyone that we really need to know what it is we want before we go to a lawyer? Well, um, it was certainly obvious to my wife and I, um, but I would say that for the rest of the community, it was an allergy to lawyers. Okay. Okay. So it was, it was no sell. <laughs> because I find sometimes that folks will find themselves and, and, it could be a sign of the times. It could be the sort of situations they're in are very different from an intentional community where the first instinct is, well, we'll just go to a lawyer and the lawyer will figure out what we should do, which I'm still admitted to practice, although I don't practice law now. To me, the idea is you go to the lawyer and say, this is what we want to do. Can you do the part where you tell us the pros and cons of what we think will work for us? Yes. And once we figure it out, then put it into practice. Absolutely. Um, a lawyer will be able, a good lawyer will help you figure out anything that you want to try to do. And going to a lawyer and saying, what should we do is giving up your your power. Absolutely. I think that's so and true. Your and your choices. So um, that would not be, obviously, that's not my, my style. I, I imagine not then and not today, particularly. No. Nothing like it that. It isn't. Nothing like that. So how did that process go of a group of people who have some familiarity with each other, but they're not necessarily thinking exactly alike, figuring out how to create these rules to live by these bylaws? I think it took us probably, I'm not a good long-term memory guy, but it was more than three months and less than a year mm-hmm. of weekly meetings to to decide how to proceed. And, you know, we had to, you know, work through what were we about? You know, why were we doing this? What did it mean to own something? Did a share mean you got, you know, that there was like land associated with it, um, which we decided it didn't? That we decided that there would be, since we were the first people building a house, we we kind of had a, not really, but we sort of had a lease to build our house. The corporation owned everything. We did come up with how to, like we, we eventually left after 12 years and we rented our our house for a while. And then we got an agreement from the, from the board, which was everybody who had shares to allocate a acre and a half of land around our house. And we deeded that acre and a half in the house. And then we sold, actually we sold the, our house and an acre of land for a dollar, which is right. a, a whole nother story. <laughs> But but we followed the the bylaws. Did you ever reach a point where it made sense to take a look at the bylaws and say, are they working as well as they should? Or do we need to make changes? Absolutely. How did that work? Well, it's almost constant. Yeah. You know, I mean, life happens. Putting together bylaws is how do you change them? Yes. What does it take to change them? The thing that we had is that people wanted to follow them. Why was that? What was the key that pe- that made people want to follow them? Hmm. 
goodwill. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you know. I mean, you you put somebody in the mix that doesn't want to. I mean, you know, and you won't. It messes it up. Did you have that happen at all? That someone yes. joined? Oh, how did that go? Well, we were no longer part of the community when that happened, so I can't really speak to it. But it was, it was very difficult, and they ended up making different arrangements with somebody. Mm-hmm. We were not part of the community at that point. I'm curious about the process of that three to twelve months. How did you folks run the meetings when you were discussing what to do? We had a rotating facilitator. Mm-hmm. I mean, once we had bylaws, we had officers right. that were elected each year. But I think during that period, we took turns facilitating, which really was great because, you know, that way nobody ended up being the alpha dog. I can see that. And of course, you were all quite literally living together. Yes. There would be such opportunity for friction. Oh, there was lots of opportunity for friction. This was not a frictionless process (laughs) by any means. How did you handle friction when things were not going well? Well, I mean, we yelled, we cried, we took a break. (laughs) I mean, you know, I don't think there's much that's more tense than governance about your home. Yeah. Your community. It's just people get so passionate. We had a live and let live philosophy. And it was my wife and I really that drove the, we got to keep at this. You know, Mm -hmm. the whole point of this is going to work is to document this and, you know, make it legal. And so we kept saying, okay, this is another day. It's, we're going to go back and sit down and, Actually, I think the best thing about this is that our kids were part of this. And how old were your kids when you started? So you'd won when you started. Well, when we very first started, my son was the oldest and he was four and a half. We all were very much into the kids are part of the community. They're there, whether they're playing or they're listening or whatever, they're there. So all of these meetings was the whole community. And you can, I can see now, like, you know, my son is 43 and he has family meetings. Both of my sons have family meetings. Every week there's a family meeting. Kid is 10 and the other is seven. They learned, you know, by being there. Absolutely. And their parents modeling, this is the way we live. This is the way we make decisions as a group. Right. I have to say that some would describe the role that you and your wife had as champions in the sense of I'm championing an idea, I am going to keep pushing yes. to make the good things happen that will be good for all of us. And it seems, and I think you're suggesting this too, sometimes that role is critical. Absolutely critical. Yeah. Absolutely. We had a vision and we didn't care what the end result was. Talk more about that. What does that, what do you mean? The vision was that we needed to have a documented way to manage ourselves, Okay. to manage the community. That was the vision. We didn't really care what the end product looked like. So we didn't have a lot of, I mean, we had opinions, of course, but our opinions were not at the forefront. For us, it was that there is a process. Yes. And that we build that, because that's your own protection, because People change and right. 
people are passionate and lives change. And, you know, we're investing time and money and, you know, our lives in this and don't want it to explode. No. I think it's fascinating that when I asked you what happened when there was friction, you said people yelled and cried and also took a break. To me, that sounds fantastic because in some circumstances where things are not going well, there can be a tendency to say, oh, no, I'm not going to admit that I'm upset to myself or anyone else, maybe myself, but no one else. There wouldn't be yelling. There wouldn't be crying. Instead, there would be this undercurrent of all sorts of negative stuff going on. I love the idea of well, we have to get it out because we care about this. We're, I think your word was passionate. This matters to us. Yeah. And at the same time, sometimes you just need to take a break. You need to step back for a little oh, bit. Oh, completely. I, really, I've used these skills extensively in my career. Tell me more about that. I am certain that in the world that you inhabit personally and professionally today, mm-hmm. there is so much opportunity for conflict and preventing it handling it, resolving it, the whole picture. So let me um, talk to you about two different angles on this. So on the one hand, I'm a nurse and I'm a performance improvement professional. I was director or vice president of quality management uh, pretty much across the continuum of care. And one of the things that I tried to do with actually limited success was to create service agreements with staff and internal customers and then myself as a volunteer in various organizations. So with staff, it was very simply, what are we here to accomplish? Who's going to do what? You know, what are the deadlines? Just your basic human resource, good human resource management stuff. Okay. So I would run a department that was dedicated to measuring and improving the quality of whatever uh, business I happened to be part of at the time. So I had a lot of internal customers, meaning other departments. And what I tried to introduce in every setting was this idea of having service agreements between my department and other departments. And I would have to say, for the most part, like more than 60% of the time, people thought I was crazy. (sighs) And it was really difficult. You know, they just thought, like, why do we need this? You know, this is, you know, I would try to establish a custom. Right. Right of doing, having, I mean, and to very simple, just being clear, uh, we're doing this report by this amount of time. It's going to take these resources. This is the person we're communicating with in the department. This is the deliverable, just your basic, totally not rocket science. Danny, how could people be opposed to this? Because... Uh, people were, yeah, how could people be opposed to this? Because it seemed like it was taking their power, their authority. They weren't accustomed to it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't know. That's a mystery to me. And I tried different ways and to do it. And the key was always, if the boss, whether that's the executive director, the CEO, whatever you want to call the boss, if the boss was into it, it happened. Right. And otherwise, it was hit and miss. Like some some of my peers would think it was a great idea, but they were well in the minority. Wow. So then I've taken that to 
I'm a volunteer in several organizations and I'm a talented guy. And I want to be very careful about what I commit to because volunteer organizations can suck you dry. Absolutely. So I have created a service agreement before I would agree to something. And it was also, I, I think I had more success in a volunteer organization because if they didn't do it, they didn't get me. Well, there's some power. Yes. Yeah. Right. So <laughs> on the other hand, it was foreign everywhere. Yeah. And I guess inertia is a powerful force. It's a very powerful force. So let me um, introduce to you the, the other way that this comes up. Managing your health is a never-ending series of decisions. Am I going to do this? Am I going to do that? Am I going to ignore it? Right. Can I afford it? And being able to participate in decision-making about your health is not a skill that we teach in school. No. So I'm active in, in several ways in uh, health care in terms of decision-making. One is making decisions for myself and how to, what are the skills that are needed to do that and how do you go about doing that? And the other is trying to advocate to have citizen experts sitting at the table of governance, design, operations, and learning in healthcare. When those decisions are being made that will affect lots of people. Correct. Okay. And so whether it means on the board or whether it means on committees or whether it means in making decisions about how something is going to be designed or doing research. It sounds like a big challenge, Danny. It is. I mean, that's my mission. <laughs> yes, sure. And so it is a big challenge. And I'm very fortunate because, as I like to tell people, I'm a two-legged cisgender white man of privilege yeah. who wears a lot of hats. And so I either am invited into or I invite myself into to sit at many tables. And my mission is to open more seats for people who are not as well representative, represented as I am. Would you say that the challenges you see there are the same sorts of challenges as you saw with trying to implement the service agreements or are they different sorts of things? They're different. Okay. They're very different. The, the power dynamic is very different. Lay people, you may call them patients or caregivers, but lay people are not well recognized as experts. Yes. You have expertise when you have credentials and letters after your name, but the more credentials you have, the more limited your expertise is. It's not limited is the wrong word. It's narrow. Narrowed. It's a funnel almost. I'm, yes. I'm seeing in my head. Like, yes. You know, I used to know lots of things and now I focus on these particular things. Right. And I really know a lot. But, but I'm an expert on my life and I'm expert on the implications for me. Yes. Without that expertise, decisions are, are limited or less likely to be followed. Right. Actually, in this day and age, I would say that there's a lot of lip service to what they call patient family engagement councils or committees. But for the most part, I would say that organizations are not very good listeners. They don't 
know how to use the advice that they get from the non-professionals. Do you think that's, again, a, a power issue or inertia, lack of experience, trying to integrate those thoughts? I think um, part of it is that healthcare is a battleship, and it's very hard to turn it. And there are so many people who have huge stakes yes. in the results, whether it's money or ego, they have huge stakes in it, and they're not used to it. So there is an inertia part. There is an experience with listening, with appreciating expertise. The thing that I would say is similar to our community, Jupiter Hollow, was that we appreciated the value of the kids. They had expertise too. That's great. This is hard stuff. I don't doubt that. I tip my hat, no pun intended to you to stick with it and to continue to do it. It sounds very challenging. I would hope that there are rewards along the way, markers of progress, because otherwise, at least for me, it would be really daunting to stick with it because the challenge seems so multidimensional, long-term. The likelihood that our medical industrial complex is going to change and improve its governance to include citizen experts is really small. Yeah. On the other hand, there's some amazing work going on out there on the local level. You just have to stick with it and, and be vigilant and keep working at it. And I don't know, it's its own reward. I mean, it can be very frustrating. And I am mostly a pathological optimist. <laughs> but I would say that when it works, it's beautiful. That's great. And I'll ask you how people could reach you. I have a website that's www.health-dash, the symbol da of a dash, hats. Com. I publish weekly, every Sunday, whether it's a blog or a podcast. Now it's really podcasts. If it's a blog, I'll, I might read it as a podcast. But um, I publish every week, and I have a website with a lot of this stuff in it. And uh, I'm uh, always open to people's thoughts and participation. And uh, that's how to get hold of me. And I will vouch for the fact that Danny's website has a lot of cool stuff on there. If you have any interest in this field and his endeavors, I encourage you to take a look. You will learn things and you'll learn how to find out more things, which seems like an important part of it because there is so much to know. Thank you, Danny. It's been a real Thank pleasure you. talking with you. Yes. Take care, Jane. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy the Crafting Solutions to Conflict podcast, please subscribe through one of the major apps or publishing platforms. For those of you who are new to listening to podcasts, here's something you may not know. Subscribing to podcasts is free. Comments or ideas about the podcast? Let me know at JB, as in my initials, at dovetailresolutions.com. Until next time, I'm Jane Battle.